So how's everyone doing today? Yeah? Good? Nice. Thank you for answering, by the way. Appreciate it. It's usually so quiet when I ask that. I get quiet nods. Steven, how are you? Youth group, thumbs up. Good stuff. Are you going to be there on the 30th? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. So, uh, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Judges chapter 8. We're going to be continuing through the book of Judges, last chapter with Gideon. So it should be fun. Maybe. I don't know. It could be sad. Not too great of an end for that fella. But uh, let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this time that we have together. Lord, uh, always and every week, such a blessing to be here with my brothers and sisters and just get into your word and talk about uh, what you've done through these people's lives and, and what you're doing now in our lives uh, and how you're speaking to our heart through these subjects. And, and Lord, I just pray that you would do that tonight. Lord, that you would be present that you would move in our midst, that you would minister to our hearts, that we wouldn't leave here, you know, without meeting with you face to face, being ministered to by you, being touched and changed. And for that, Lord, I praise you. You're so faithful to do that every time we get into your word. So I just pray that you would do that once again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Judges chapter 8. Um, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about Gideon, and uh, we've really seen him just go through this incredible transition. Um, you know, go from this man that, uh, that was afraid of his own shadow, um, hiding out, and unsure of himself, unsure about the Lord, uh, just weak faith, full of unbelief, and God came to him and said, Gideon, you're a mighty warrior. And clearly and visibly, he wasn't. But we've seen him become exactly what God knew that he was all along. And Gideon became this great man of faith, this mighty warrior. And with 300 men, we saw last chapter, uh, he overcame this innumerable enemy opposition. It was really this uh, miraculous victory that they went there and had. and they, they struck at night and the Midianites were confused and they turned on one another. They began to fight each other and then they took to the hills and Gideon goes after him, not accepting the retreat as a victory. It wasn't good enough for him. He wanted complete victory over the enemy. And when we left him last week, uh, he had in each hand the head of one of his enemies and there, standing on the, the banks of that great river, ahead of each enemy in your hands, uh, there's no greater picture of complete victory over the enemy. But, uh, but, but, but that portion of the battle is done, and it's gone, and they're back on their heels, and they're running again in chapter 8 to take out the rest of the Midianites all over. Um, you know, here's just a, here's just a man that isn't going to settle. And, and here's a man that you can see that, that is not the same man uh, that he was only a chapter ago. You know, and he just had this, he had this uh, slow start. 
he had this great peak. And now we're going to see the rest of the story. Uh, because in, in so many ways, chapter 7 was the high point uh, of his life. It was the, the, this great, miraculous moment in his life. Uh, but it's worth noting down, maybe, that we're not defined by a single moment in our life. No matter how high and holy that moment might be, or how horrible and sinful that moment by, might be. We're not defined by a single moment. Really, we're defined by what is going to come after that moment. You see, we all have these high and holy moments. Maybe, uh, maybe it's a conversation that you've had with a person and it just seems that the scales come off their eyes and, and, and just they, they see the world anew and you can see the work in their heart. And it's almost visually, you, you just, they're transformed right before you. You just know that this person, that this is the beginning of their, their spiritual journey. And, you know, they just, they just understand it and God makes it clear to them and God opens their eyes and, and, and it's a wonderful moment. And oh, if that was the last moment of my life, what a great moment to go out on. You know, maybe it's uh maybe it's a Sunday. Maybe it was last Sunday. Maybe you were baptized last Sunday. And and what a great moment to have as your last moment. You know, you go into the water and your eyes are closed and and you come out and your eyes open and you're in heaven and it's Jesus. And I don't know what happened. Maybe Sam held you down too long. But, you know, it's like if that was your last moment, what a wonderful moment. What that high and holy moment. Uh, but that's chapter 7. For Gideon. That's his finest hour. But there is for all of us, and there certainly is for Gideon, quite literally in the scripture, a chapter 8 for all of us. There's what comes after that moment. There's the rest of those moments. And, and it, it could be filled with, with the routine and the mundane. And, and it might be filled uh, with, with us missing the mark and falling short. It's going to be all of that. And it's good to know that we're not defined simply by that. It's where you go from that. It's what comes after that. Gideon's in a valley in chapter 6. That's where we meet him. That's where we first see him. In chapter 7, he's on a mountaintop. And in chapter 8, he's on the path that will become the rest of his life. You know, let me say before we get into this, it's really easy to honor God in one courageous moment of our life. And you almost wish that that's all that it had to be, right? If I just do this one thing, that'd be great. And that could be it for me. If I could just go talk to this person and, and, and do a work there or, or start a thing here or, or, you know, whatever it might be, whatever it is that God has on your heart, if I could just do that one thing, well, wouldn't that be just glorious? But you'll find that you'll wake up the next morning. And Gideon is waking up the next morning. And what's really important is whether you continue on that course that you set by that high and holy moment, or whether you begin to drift away. And for Gideon, it's going to be gradual. And I think for a lot of us it is. But you'll see that he ends up in a distinctly different place than where he began. We'll start in verse 1 of chapter 8. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, 
Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. The first thing Gideon faces after a great victory. What is it? It's criticism. And then this is something that I've come to know quite well. Uh, the more you step out in your Christianity, the more you're going to find that people evaluate you critically. That's just, it seems to be uh, the way that it is. Gideon accomplished something great, something that, in fact, no one thought could be done. That's why they were hiding in caves, living in shadows. He defeated the enemy. You know, and he was led by the Lord. He was guided by the Lord, greatly used by the Lord. But that didn't stop people from criticizing him. You know, and it's like, this tribe was angry. How come you didn't wake us up for the war? That was their criticism. You know? Uh, but remember, Gideon was the weak guy from the weak tribe. I mean, isn't that what he said to God? He said, God, you, you shouldn't be using me. I'm the weakest person from the weakest people. I mean, these were the people, the Ephraimites, that should have done the job. But they didn't. In fact, they didn't do anything. But they jumped on the first opportunity to criticize Gideon when he did. And isn't this the way uh, people are? And I'll make it more uncomfortable, because maybe you're too comfortable. Maybe I'm too comfortable. Isn't this the way that we can be, right? I mean, it's so easy to be critical of people from our couch. You know, I know everything that everyone should be doing from my couch. You know, I was, uh, I was, uh, I was having dinner with my parents, um, last week. What was that, hon? Was that Sunday, Saturday? I don't know. Monday? Maybe this isn't important. Yeah, I'll just, just happened. It was one day. I asked her because she was taking a nap. Um, so it was, it was a special moment for her. Okay, but it was Sunday, right? I was having dinner with my parents. I went up there and, and my parents, uh, since they both retired, um, they become that couple of just bickers about everything, and uh, it's not serious. You know, you don't have to be worried, uh, but it's hilarious uh, to see. Actually, it's, it's like a TV show. Watching the two of them together, um, only there's there's no laugh track. It's just sadness. Um, my dad. Yeah, <laughs> I was talking to my dad, and um, I was like, you know, I've got these trees at uh, at our house that I really need to trim. There's these three trees that really needed to get cut down. They were just overgrown. They were getting out of control. And and my dad was like, oh, really, what day are you going to do it? And I was like, Tuesday. He was like, okay, cool, I'll come down, I'll help you with your trees. And I was like, okay, great. We have two chainsaws, it's better than one, right? Both of us could be hacking away at things. And my mom jumps in, she's like, don't let your father trims the trees. He cuts them down to a nub. And, and my dad says, uh, well, really, a nub? I'm sure you can see that far from your couch. And it was actually, it was, it was, it was kind of perfect um, because... Because that's exactly the way that we can be, right? It's so easy to do nothing and criticize those that do everything, right? And we do this with our bosses at work. We do this with our pastors at church. We do this with our friends and our family. And it's not healthy. And it can be really hurtful, in fact. And don't, don't misunderstand me. You know, I understand that there's, a such, there's such a thing as constructive criticism. Right, and and that's that's good, uh, and and you know, and 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 it could be beneficial when we receive it, but criticism can also be very damaging and even damning for certain people. So we need to be careful about how we use it. Yeah, you know, I remember when I uh, when I was a little bit younger, when I first started teaching the Bible, um, 
I was terrible at it. Uh, <laughs> you might be like, hey, no, let's change. But uh, I was, I was, I was really bad, and and the things I would say were really bad. Um, just uh, filled with the fecal illustrations. I mean, just gross and gnarly. Not the type of stuff that you should be saying at church, right? Corrine's nodding her head, uh, and then she's like, "You shouldn't have even have said it now." But uh, but I used a, a proper terminology for it. I don't think that I'll get rebuked after it. Uh, but you know, I, I don't know what qualifies necessarily a person to preach. But whatever it is, I didn't have it. Right, I was only a couple of years old in the Lord, but for some reason, uh, Eric, the guy that was in charge of the ministry, he kept on just pushing me, and he's like, you know, you need to get out there and uh, and you know just believe that the Lord could teach through you. And uh, I was like, okay, cool, so I did it. And I look over those messages today, and I don't know how I was ever allowed to teach the next message after every message that I look at. Um, but uh, it, it all changed. Uh, one Sunday, when after a message, I was just uh, sharply criticized by this more seasoned saint uh, in the church. And, and she came up to me and she said, y- you can't talk like that in church. That's not proper to say those things in church. Don't tell those stories in church. I mean, you're, you're dishonoring the pulpit. You're bringing shame to God. And her vein was popping out in her head, and she's yelling at me. And, 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 and you know, I just remember thinking, well, this is an older lady. This is a more intelligent lady. You know, the, the, she's, she's much more qualified than I am. She should be doing this job. And she should be teaching the Bible, not me. And I, I just remember thinking, it was just this flash in my mind, okay, well, that's it. Maybe I won't preach anymore. This will be my last act as a preacher of the Word of God. I'm going to go off on this lady, and then I'm going to hang it up. I'm going to call it quits. And, and you know, and it's how carnal I could be. Uh, this was yesterday. No, I'm kidding. This was years ago. Um, but but God spoke to my heart and said, you know what? You really need to listen to her. This is, this is constructive criticism. And, and, you know, maybe she's mean, Right? And maybe she's hurting your feelings, right? But you need to accept what she's telling you because it's not just of her. It's of me. And you're bringing shame to me. The things you're saying aren't appropriate in the context of what you're doing. And so for once, I bit my tongue and I took a lesson out of the Proverbs. I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 15. This is a wonderfully practical verse when it comes to answering a critic. How should you respond to these people? Well, Solomon tells you. He says in Proverbs 15, verse 1, A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. If that's not highlighted in your Bible, you should do that. right? I mean, a soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words Stir a banger. That, that's what I did, and I'm glad I did that. You know, sure, this lady was being rude, but the Lord really used her words. And and and, I, and now I evaluate much more critically what I'm going to say when I'm saying it on behalf of God Almighty. Right? Maybe I shouldn't be so flippant. Maybe I shouldn't be so abrasive. It was a soft answer. So just take a breath. You know, when Ephraim is blowing up at you. You know, and then give your soft answer. Be gentle. Be respectful of that person because God is trying to tell you something through that person. That's exactly what Gideon's going to do in verse 2 and 3. 
But he answered them, what have, I, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abizar? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, the resentment against him subsided. Boy, this is so hard to do, isn't it? When someone's, you know, throwing so much negativity at you, it's unnatural to respond with anything but negativity back to those people. It goes against our nature. Maybe it's our fallen nature, but it goes against it. You know, when someone's gossiping about you, talking trash about you, maybe even to your face, disrespecting you, telling you what they think of you. When all that negativity is coming at you, it's just natural to respond negatively, to blow up back at them. Well, that's what you think about me? Let me tell you what I think about you. You know, you think I'm a bad person? You're worse. Who are you to tell me that I'm a bad person when you're a worse person? You know, it's, it's, it's just easy to go off on that. But it's been a very difficult lesson and one that I'm still uh, very much so still learning. Uh, that these are the opportunities that we have to evaluate our visual Christianity. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, there are three basic views of self. Right? The first view of self is what I think of me. Uh, the second view of self is what I think that you think of me. The third view is what you actually think of me. And often, all three of them are very different. Right? I might think that I'm super spiritual. That I'm just the most awesome Christian in the room. I, 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 I sweat holiness from my pores. That's how awesome I am. I'm not even sitting in this chair. I'm levitating off the ground. That's how great of a Christian I am. Okay, that's the first one. That's what I think about me. The second one is what I think that you think about me. I might think that you think that I'm a pretty good Christian. But you don't think that I'm as awesome a Christian as I really am. So therefore, you're diminishing me in your view of me. Now, the third one, what you actually think of me, you might think that I'm the most carnal person you've ever met. You might think that I'm a complete chaff head. You might think that I'm a terrible person. I don't sweat holiness. I, I, I sweat sweat. I don't know. I'm a regular person. I mean, that's just, that's what I do. I'm just, I'm a, I'm a wretch. You know, and, and, and you, that's what you actually think about me. Now, now, these are the moments, these moments of criticism that we have uh, the opportunity to understand how we appear from another person's perspective. And let me tell you, it's the only time that we have that opportunity. Because we spend our entire lives in the first two. We spend our entire lives thinking about ourselves, how we view ourselves, and how we think that you think we are. But these are the only times that we have to go into this third category. And, and it's because of that that we become so aggravated when we're faced with this third category. Right? When someone actually tells us how they view us, we almost in, in, invariably respond with saying something like, I'm not like that. How come you see me like that? Why do you think that about me? That couldn't be further from the truth when it comes to me. But there's a reason why they're saying that. There's a reason why they think that. It's because of what uh, we appear 
to be. It's our visual Christianity. It's the perspective of us that we're putting out for other people's observations. And it's for this reason that we should take to heart other people's criticism. Because they often see something very different from what we perceive ourselves to be. This is one of the few opportunities we have to critically evaluate our visual Christianity. And it's easy to think of criticism as only being something that's negative. Right? I think that's where our mind goes most often. But criticism simply means the analysis or evaluation of something. So it could very clearly be positive. And I'll tell you, for me personally, it's much harder to receive positive analysis about myself than it is negative. I mean, it's, it's, if you walk up to me and say, Michael, you're no good. Well, that's easy for me to believe because I'm already very hard on myself. So if you say, hey, you're no good, then that really just evaluates the image of my own Christianity. But I'll tell you, the inability to receive positive analysis as well as negative analysis, they can be equally damaging to our Christianity. Right? If you can't receive something positive that somebody says about your Christianity, you're going to spend your whole life feeling defeated and unable to do anything of any value for anybody, including for God. If you're unable to receive negative analysis of your Christianity... If you're just so infatuated with yourself, you're going to be unable to do anything of value for God, and you're going to be unable to be used by God because you're so full of pride. God can't get the glory for what he does through you. So each one of them can be equally damaging to us, so it's wise to us to be open to this criticism, to respond as Gideon did. In verse seven, we continue, or in verse four, we continue. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted, yet keeping up their pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, give me troops, or give my troops, give me troops, give my troops some bread. They're worn out, and I'm still in pursuit of Zeba and Zaluna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zaluna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. Now, I could be wrong on this, and feel free, free to criticize me. You know, I'll try and accept your criticism very graciously. But I think that Gideon's reaction is a bit extreme here. All right, you might read this and say, well, Gideon responded the way that a good leader should respond, you know? But uh, I think that he's becoming frustrated with dealing with this nation. And I think that, uh, you know, he's, he's not giving a soft answer, as Solomon would say, that he just did to this last group of Israelites. And this answer is anything but soft. It's actually quite abrasive. And these people, his own countrymen, men of Israel, they're too afraid of Midian to help him out. They think Midian's going to come or defeat Gideon's army and then come down and retaliate against them for helping Midian, for giving him aid. Gideon says, well, you know, okay, after I get them, I'm coming back and I'm going to get you too. I'm going to tear your flesh with desert thorns. And that just sounds unpleasant. 
You know, so he begins, we begin to see this change in Gideon, right? And the way he talks and the way he acts, it's a very different Gideon than chapter 6. He's burdened by leadership, and he's becoming frustrated. He's already starting to lash out, become inwardly focused. He comes to this first group of Israelites, and they're saying to him, Hey, why didn't you get us to help you? Now he's come to the second group of Israelites, and they're saying, We don't want to help you. And he's just beginning to go, well, fine, I don't need any of your help. I don't want any of your help. I'll just go do it by myself. And when I'm done, I'm going to come it back. I'm going to come on back. I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to prove it to you. And I'm going to punish you. And he continues with this in verse 8. In verse 8, from there he went to Peniel and made the same request of them. But they answered as the men of Succoth had. And so he said to the men of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. He's frustrated, and it's beginning to mount on him. You know, I, I, it's interesting to me that the word triumph in the NIV version, it, this word is translated elsewhere in the Old Testament as peace. Right? It's, it's the word shalom. And I always thought that shalom meant peace. So why is it translated as triumph here? It's because it sounds so absurd for someone to say, when I return in peace, I'm going to attack you. Yeah, I mean, Gideon is, he's totally confused and messed up here in his own mind. And actually, he's going to do much worse than just come back and attack them. He's going to come back and kill the men of the city. And he says, when I return in peace, I'm going to kill you. You know, it's interesting to me that if you were here last week, you saw uh, that when the people were afraid, God let them go. And he never punished them. You know, if you're afraid, just just go and it's fine. It's okay with me. But in chapter 8, when the people are afraid, Gideon takes it upon himself to punish them. His change in him is becoming much more evident. But in verse 10, now Ziba and Zalmunna were in uh, Kokhar, sure, with a force of about 15,000 men. All that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples, 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of uh, Noba and the Jogbaha and fell upon the unsuspecting army, Ziba and Zalmunna. The two kings of Midian fled, but he pursued them, captured them, routing their entire armies. It's interesting to me uh, to consider that Gideon is clearly, as Christians would say, uh, in the flesh. It's one of those wonderful Christian terms. He's in the flesh. And what does that mean? It means that he's doing dumb things, right? He's, he's, he's not on this high and holy place when it comes to his brothers and sisters of Israel, right? He's, he's not uh, exercising grace, right? He's not being patient and merciful. But God is still using him, isn't he? God is still blessing him. He captures the army. He becomes a national hero. And it's easy for a person in this situation to begin to think that they can live in both worlds. right? They can have it both ways. I can do the God thing, and that's all well and good, uh, but I can also do my own thing. It's an easy trap to fall into. I can have the best of both worlds, the spiritual world, and I can enjoy the things of God. I can get all the blessings of God. I can get these great victories that only come from God. Where else are you going to find a victory where 300 men kill thousands with swords? They're farmers. These are warriors. God gives him the victory. I can have all the blessings of God, but still enjoy the fruit 
maybe the fallen fruit of the sinful world. And I can get away with it, right? Gideon's getting away with it. There's no thunderbolt from heaven that's striking him down. You know, God's not, you know, pushing his way through the clouds and picking him up and crushing him in his fingers. And, and maybe I have a very dark graphic view of God, but that stuff isn't happening, right? None of that's happening. His Christian friends, if they notice it at all, they're not, they're not calling him out. You know, he's, he's involved in a very successful, you know, life journey, even a very successful ministry. But personal success doesn't necessarily mean divine approval. And you can think of a myriad of examples like that. I mean, I could tell the story of Jim Baker. I'm reading the, the book written by his son, Jay Baker. He had the most profitable ministry in America. But he was living a life of sin. And eventually it all came crashing down. You might be doing very well in life without the approval of God upon your life. Earthly success isn't the mark of heavenly approval. For Gideon already, his best days are behind him. But we continue in verse 13. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Herez. He caught a young man of Succoth and questioned him. The young man wrote down for him, the names of the 77 officials of Succoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the man of Succoth, Here are Ziba and Zelmuna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Ziba and Zelmuna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the leaders of the town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of that town. And I'll leave the rest to your reading. Um, he brutally beats the men of Succoth. He kills the men of Peniel. Um, both of these, his own countrymen, he engages the enemy and he saves them and then turns around and punishes and murders many of them. Um, and the nation still, when you read the rest of the chapter, cry out to him. They say, be our king. Rule over us. And Gideon says, I'm not going to. I won't do it. And you think, is this noble Gideon? Is he coming to himself? Is he coming to his senses? No. Right? He rejects the responsibility, but he still requires a reward. He says, okay, I saved your life. And the price of your life is a gold earring from every Jewish man or man. And you think, well, that's not a lot. Gold earring for my life, that's, that's pretty sweet. So everyone gives him a golden earring. The accumulation of this along with all the other, uh, or, or not counting all the other plunder that he gets from the victory is 43 pounds. Melts it all down, makes a solid gold ephod, this priestly garment. He puts the ephod up in his hometown and it becomes the national center of idolatry. With Israel gathering together, Gideon himself worshiping this golden garment. You read it in verse 27. Let's take a look at that one. Chapter 8, verse 27. Gideon made the, the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All of Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. What was the rest of his life like? He had 70 sons. How do you have 70 sons? It's easy. He had many wives. Right? He even had a son 
with a woman who was not one of his wives. So money, idolatry, polygamy, and extramarital affairs. And this was the rest of Gideon's, uh, the rest of Gideon's days. And I'll just say what many of you are no doubt already thinking, that his beginning was much greater than his end. All right? And it's a tragedy. And it does sadden me. You know, everyone, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but, but so many people know about the story of Gideon. Uh, so much so that I remember it was, it was one of Eric's shining moments uh, when I was about a year old in the Lord. So I was about 17 years old. And he said, yeah, a guy's coming to our church to speak. He's going to talk about the men of Gideon. And I was like, who's Gideon? And he said, and you call yourself a Christian. You know, it's, it's one of those people that everyone kind of knows about. And you're kind of expected to know about Gideon. He's this great man of faith. But we tend to forget the rest of the story. And this was the rest of his story. And it's kind of a sad story. You know, he's one of those guys in the Bible like Noah. Right, Noah? The great man of faith. The most righteous man on earth. The only one found righteous when God was going to pour out his judgment upon earth with the flood. I mean, that is a great guy. That is a great life. But how did Noah end his life? What's the last thing we read about him in Scripture? Right? He was drunk and naked. You know, and he couldn't hide his shame from his children. What about David? And David, here's a, here's a righteous man, a man of faith, called a man after God's own heart. You know, he slew Goliath, became the greatest king of Israel, and then what? And then adultery and murder, and his family fell apart. The last words that you read of King David, you, you can read it again. It's 1 Kings chapter 2. The last words of a dying king. He calls Solomon to his side, and he says, Hey, you know, Solomon, there's, uh, there's some things I need to tell you before I die. And it's like, great. The, the pearls, the gold nuggets from this man of God. And he says, hey, there's this guy, uh, uh, Shimmy. I didn't like him, never liked him. He was mean to me. I want you to kill him when I'm dead. Can you do that for me, son? Can you just kill this guy? There's this other fellow, Joab. Uh, he did some things I didn't really like what he was doing. He's doing terrible things. I want you to kill that guy, too. And these are the last words of David, a man after God's own heart, and it reads like a hit list, you know? And their beginning was much greater than their end. I don't know why this happens, right? I, I suppose over time, uh, there's just all these other things that come in and complicate the simplicity of maybe our early Christianity, there's all these other things that come in the way, and they become obstacles in our spiritual journey. Yeah, I think pastors and preachers, I should just say preachers, I shouldn't say pastors, but I think preachers a lot of times try and uh, say, well, okay, just don't do this thing. You know, if you just don't do this thing, you won't end up in this place. But I'm not sure it's that simple for this one. You know, it's like maybe, maybe for David it was, you know, being a king, being a father, being a warrior, and in every way being a national figure. It wasn't so easy for him in the later days of his life to just be a man after God's own heart when that's all God wanted him to be in the first place. And maybe for Noah it was, uh, 
this thing, this substance that was tempting for him. It had a lure. And for him it was alcohol. Maybe for us it would be a person. Maybe it's material possessions. And it consumed him and it carried him away. He was the most righteous man on earth. And then it was just him and that thing. And that thing had him. And that thing was paralyzing him. And I don't know how it happens, but it seems to happen a lot. You know, people start off in their Christianity and, and they're in love with the Lord and they're just on fire for the Lord. And God is at the forefront of their existence. He's in the driver's seat. But over time, and it usually takes some time, uh, things change and they drift away. And, and like I said, I don't know why it happens, but I know this, that it, it doesn't have to happen. Uh, if you turn to Jude, Jude is the second to the last book in the Bible. Right, it's right before the book of Revelation. There's two verses in there that are wonderful in their simplicity. Jude 24 and 25 says, To him who is able, to him who is able, right? he's able, he's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence, without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Right? Our end can be a glorious end. Right? But our Lord is the only one who can get us there. And he's able to get us there. He's able to get you there to such a degree that he can present you at the end of your life without fault and with great joy. And that's a glorious thing to consider. You know, when I think about Noah and I think about David and I think about Gideon, I think about these men and, and I don't know how it happened in their life. And I'm sure it was very complicated and I don't want to diminish that to saying that it was one decision that they made. I'm sure it was, it was a whole mess of them. But the wonderful thing about it is I don't need to consider that too much. Because I can camp out on this promise. That as long as I stick close to Jesus, he'll get me to the end. And he'll get me there perfectly. He'll get me there happily with great joy. You, you know, I, I, I talked about my grandma uh, last week. Right, And I was thinking about her throughout the week. I mentioned that she was, last week if you were here, that she was the only one that was a Christian in my family before I before I became a Christian myself. Um, and, and as I was thinking about her all week, I began to think, uh, you know, she, she never preached a message. Right? She never planted a church. She never was on the worship team. Uh, she had a terrible singing voice. Corinne, though, she heard her sing. Just shrill. Just... Evil, not pleasant even to God to hear, I'm sure. I mean, just just the worst type of thing in the world. Um, but when she passed away, the morning she passed away, uh, I saw on her bedside table her old, worn-out Bible. And when I went to her funeral, I discovered that she lived every word of that book in the simplicity of her own calling. You know, there were all these people that, that stood up to talk at her funeral and said, well, she gave bags of candy 
to the, to the children's ministry. She donated money so that we could have t-shirts. I thought that she hated children. I didn't know that she did any of those things. There were all these, these little girls that started coming up to me and showing me pictures of, uh, of my, of them with my grandma. And I was thinking, why do you have a picture with my grandma? It's like she's Santa Claus or something. Uh, but, but they, they, they said, no, and she, she discipled me. I had no idea she was doing that. All these lives that she had touched and blessed, and I thought that I was the only one. But she did it quietly, and she did it gently, and she did it privately in a lot of ways. You know, God can give us more than a great moment in our lives like Gideon. God can give us a truly great life, one where our ending is greater than our beginning. Jesus can get us there, right? Across that finish line, present us before his Father without spot, without fault, and with great joy, because truly there is no greater joy than just living for the Lord and living with the Lord all the days that he gives us in our lives. Let's close in a word of prayer. Let's gracious Heavenly Father. I thank you, Lord, for your word and the truth of it. Lord, the lessons that we can learn from it. I pray, God, that as you speak to our heart and move in our midst, maybe it's something like David or Noah or Gideon, and there's these obstacles that are coming into our path. And maybe there's just these things that we need to brush aside and say, well, you know, I don't want to slow down as I'm nearing the finish line. I want to speed up. I want to live a life that is pleasing to God, live a life with God, live a life for God. I just want to be a person after God's own heart. I don't need all these other things. I pray, Lord, that for each and every one of us, as we come to you, as we lay ourselves before you, Lord, that you would do exactly what you promised to do. That you would get us to our destination and that you would glorify yourself through us all the days of our lives. I thank you for it, Lord, this wonderful opportunity we have in this life. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.